and talking to our friends. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas, and I'm here with... Aubrey Loveless. Lobster Johnson. And Mark Tweedell. Hey, Mark, you're back! It's a Mark! Welcome back, Mark. Yeah, hopefully I sound a little better this time. We're trying uh, something different. We'll keep an eye on that. We're still trying to work out the differences. It is a, it is a long distance that we're we're calling on, so... Right. Some of that is to be expected, I guess. Yeah, from Australia, there's a bit of a delay. <laughs> yeah, still never going to be as bad as that first Lobster Johnson episode. <laughs> right, that's true. <laughs> I'm not really Lobster Johnson, y'all. Oh. What? Um, yeah. My world is shattered. I know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Why don't you tell the listeners about the podcast? Well, first we kick some Nazis' teeth in, and then... No, okay, so what we're doing now is we're going to read this no we already did we read it already well so we tell you what you're gonna read you tell you and then you read it and then we also read it and then we all get together we talk about it and you listen to that and then you're like hey damn guys i gotta talk about that too because it's a book club and friendship yes amazing thank you for that and then (laughs) those get better and better every time (laughs) do they though (sighs) So, this is our Christmas Eve episode. Oh, is it? Okay. Yes. If you celebrate that, I know a lot of you damn guys are out there celebrating winter holidays here at the Book Club HQ. We're accepting of everybody and whatever it is that you do. So, just happy winter holidays and thank you for sticking with us for another year. Happy summer holidays for all of our friends on the other side of the globe. Is, oh, that, yeah. a, is that a thing, Mark? What do you mean? Uh, sort of, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's summer here so yeah i guess it must be happy summer (laughs) you know over the year we've had our regular book club contributors and new ones that we've met some occasionals who float in and out and like wes mattis book club members said on a previous episode shout out to all the silent members we love all you guys too yes we do leave a review on itunes though don't be that silent right you don't have to leave a review if you don't want to. Don't let him pressure you hey. into doing that. No, you do. You do. You definitely have to leave a review. <laughs> Thank you for backing Jeez. me up on that, Mark. We do all this for free. We do it for the community, friendship, and just good old geeking out over funny books. See? Sorry. Too many Lobster Johnson episodes lately. Anyway, I'm so thankful for Aubrey, Danielle, Matt, and Mark. And I'm thankful for all you damn guys. Yeah. Aw. I am thankful for all you guys, too. I also want to promote the Buff Raffle is still going on in Mike Mignola's art on Facebook. This last week, Craig McKnight, he revealed what's in the Dark Horse book bundle. And so these are the contents. You've got the Hellboy 25 Years of Covers hardcover. Hellboy Library Edition Volume 1. Hellboy The Art of the Movie. The Amazing Screw-On-Head hardcover. Abe Sapien The Drowning and Other Stories hardcover. Baltimore trade paperback novel and the three Hellboy Seat of Destruction variants from the 25th anniversary. So it's got the standard Hellboy Day one as well as the convention exclusive and the Comics Pro exclusive variant. So all those are just one prize that you could win for just a $5 donation. Wait, that's one prize? Yes, it is. That's the that's the Dark Horse. Oh wow. That's been donated by Dark Horse Comics. So thank you so much Dark oh. Horse. And thank you, Craig McKnight, for putting on the awesome raffle. Remember that we're supporting Cancer Research, COPD Research, Brain Tumor Association, and Alzheimer's Association. So all your donations will go towards a good cause. Let's keep that raffle train a-running. Is that a thing to say? Sure. (laughs) You just said it. (laughs) And unfortunately, uh, Matt's not with us again this week. 
But we've got Mark uh, helping out, so thank you so much, Mark, for joining us again. Hey, it's Mark. Yeah, that's no problem. But I do want to shout out Matt's plugs. Check out the Letter Hack podcast on Twitter. You can also check him out at Friends of Strackbine on Instagram. Check out his new webcomic, Webcluse, which is coming out multiple times a week, as well as his Letter Hack podcast. And so we'll have Matt back on soon. I'm excited to hear from him again. I'll be in the blooper episode, though, right? Yeah, there'll be some good Matt in there. Yeah, Yeah, there'll be some good Matt bloopers. Yeah. And with all that out of the way, now we're going to move on to some listener feedback. So get out your trades and floppies. Get out your hardback copies. Digital print is fine. You can read along in time. We got a happy holidays, you damn guys, from Brendan Carter. Book club member. Yeah. He said, I've been meaning to write you for a while. I'll start out by saying that this is probably not a letter you want to read on the podcast. Well, I'm going to read about it anyway. Okay. (laughs) He said um, the book club has become a wonderful part of his week, and he looks forward to it with excitement, and it fills him with joy. Thank you for that. But the reason I'm writing to you is a follow-up letter that I sent you six months ago where I mentioned to you that I was working on a project the book club helped inspire. I wanted to share that project with you. And so it's a pilot script that he wrote for a speculative BPRD series. Nice. Oh, wow. So it's his own like creation. He talks about how he incorporated stuff that we talked about on the show. Oh, so wow. So back when we read Hollow Earth, like... Danielle, you talked about when Liz is doing the madras with her hands. Oh, yeah. Like, if that did different abilities. And so he actually wrote that into his thing that she could use different mandras with her hands to do different things with the fire. That's super Stuff cool. like that, which is an idea that you helped inspire. Oh, okay. And he huh. also talked about he wanted to work in some of the agents in the early episodes. So maybe you see, like, Nichols in the background oh, nice. or something like yeah. that. Or you oh, see nice. like, you know, Professor O'Donnell walk through. So that way you start to introduce yeah, like all that. the other characters. Um, so I thought that was really cool. He said, um, so he sent me the thing. I haven't had a chance to read it, but I'm really excited to dig in. I just got it yesterday. He was talking about how much the podcast helped inspire this project of his. Super cool. He also said he always loves your casting ideas. <laughs> the two people that he likes for Liz are Lizzie Kaplan or Tessa Thompson. Tessa Thompson. Oh, nice. uh, so I thought those were interesting uh, choices for Liz. So he said, thanks for everything. Brendan Carter. Thank yeah. you so much for that. That is so Excellent. cool. Yeah. We had some feedback on Tony Masso's Finest Hour. Edgar Sid said, I damn near burst out laughing in the middle of my workout. Coming from Long Island, I can attest that a majority of us are somewhat walking here. Ah. Thank you, Danielle. (laughs) Excellent. We had some feedback on Lobster Johnson's Scent of Lotus. Jan Niklas said, he said, am I the only one that finds the lobster a bit hypocritical in Scent of Lotus? I mean... He shoots every criminal he meets, but the tongs are okay because they send some money back home. Or my inner headcanon is more credible than I thought. See, I really don't believe that the lobster is about justice. He just likes killing. The bigger, the better. A little mafioso here and there is nice, but someone like the Crimson Lotus, that's a four-star meal for his hungry pistol. A real challenge for a change. So he needs the tongs to lure her out. Otherwise, she would have just been able to get away after she killed her enemies. Maybe he came back and justiced all of Chinatown after they put the Lotus away? Or he just got bored because politics are too complicated for him, and he likes his criminals greedy and simple. 
makes him feel better about himself. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, mm, I have to. Yeah, have to that is interesting. I'd say that uh, what's necessarily legal in the uh, in uh, the lobster's eyes is not necessarily the same as justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I have to disagree. The lobster absolutely rules. <laughs> yeah, that's my that's my assessment. That's he my in depth uh, analyzation of that. He can't be hypocritical because he just rules. He's just whips ass. So, oh, whips Nazi ass, and uh, that's fine. He's like Batman if the rule was reversed. Absolutely kill as many Nazis <laughs> as possible. I mean, I don't mind him killing the Nazis or anything like that. But I mean, it is have a point. I mean, you know, he was working with another set up criminal gangs sure mm-hmm. sure um, yeah even though they were sending the money back to you know their families who were being torn apart by japan during that time but. i yeah i i do like the idea though that maybe he was just trying to lure out the bigger fish you sure. know yeah. what i mean with that one so yeah nvo on instagram and jason abaddon were talking about the crimson lotus is daimyo's grandma remember mm-hmm. that was oh, revealed. Right. yeah we didn't talk about that I kind of forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, Oh, right, right. And they found that. I remember Johan found that out, and he was like, hey, everybody, look at this. This proves something. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it didn't, Johan. We had some feedback on our Get the Lobster episode. Jerry Turnbull put in his own casting. All right. Oh, nice. He cast David Harbour, who played Hellboy, uh-huh. as the Russian bear. Oh, nice. The nice. wrestler, right? Yeah, especially after that Black Widow trailer. Yeah. Yeah. That's very easy to see. Yeah, you know, like yeah. And Jerry also said, so that's what Mark sounds like. Oh. And Danielle's mom. Yeah, that's my mom. <laughs> and by this time, Mark, they'll have already had a whole episode of you. Yeah. That's so weird. (laughs) (laughs) Sarah Cole said, guest starring both the lobster and the lobster's mom, you guys are hitting the big time. (laughs) Nice. Edgar Sid said, you guys mentioning Von Klempt and Krigafi in last episode reminded me that Peter Briggs, the co-writer of the first Hellboy movie, had them both in the first draft of the movie. A disembodied spider-legged Nazi would have been such an amazing sight on the big screen. So, And then he screen-capped these tweets from Peter Briggs, who co-wrote the first Hellboy movie, and the spider leg Von Klempt was his mm-hmm. idea. Yeah. And then Mignola later put it in the BPRD 1946. Cool. So I thought that was a really cool detail there. And then, I don't know if you remember in the first movie where Hellboy's down in this pit, and he's like fighting all these Samuels. And then yeah. Liz has to set right, them all right. on fire. Well, they mm-hmm. were going to be those gorillas, the Kriegrafen. Huh. Oh, shit. That would have been crazy. He would have been, like, fighting a bunch of those things. Maybe they workshopped they it, to, and yeah. then they had, like, one of the, you know, those, those like, groups. What are they called? Where Focus you, groups? Yeah. Where they were just like, ah, oh, this movie's okay, but, like, what's with all the gorilla murdering? It's kind of <laughs> weird. I don't know. Right. I'm guessing that, um, you know, being that it was uh, 2004, the hair physics wasn't there to make that, okay, or you know, that. justifiable. I mean, like, Monsters sure. Incorporated was still new, and even then the hair's pretty dodgy in that. You gotta oh, think about right. stuff like that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Drew Campbell said, we know from Lobster Johnson, the Iron Prometheus, that Dr. Waxman survived the Zeppelin explosion. That story takes place in 1937, three years after this one. I don't think Waxman is supposed to be Von Klempt. I'm not certain what connection they have to each other. The Hellboy wiki says that Waxman's work was a precursor for the Krigafi project. 
So there's this part where the giant, when they're fighting in the big city, remember, and the thing runs at him, it says Kriga that, oh, when okay. it's yelling. And so <laughs> Drew Campbell says that means beware or kill. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for that, Drew. That was a nice detail. It is. Yeah. We had some feedback from Mark Tweedell. He said, I love that sequence. This was a page I wanted to buy badly, but someone else got it first. So you're talking about that page where the lobster comes in and Cindy Tynan was, she was like, what if I don't? When he says, mm. stop writing the story. Yeah, that is such a cool page. Yeah, um, nice and then page. you had a little bit more to say about that. Yeah, about her hair coming loose. She's always really composed in these stories. And I just love that detail of like, we've never seen it, even in these big action scenes, her hair coming loose. But in this one scene, her hair comes loose and dangles over her eye. It just says so much about how very shaken she is by what's happening. Right. Uh, I also really love how like that scene really pushes the ambiguity of the lobster. He is really like, it's a terrible idea to call him a hero. He's not exactly a villain either. He's just this force of nature, really. Yeah, that's a great page. Too bad you didn't get to you, you didn't get to get it. Do you have any of Zonich's pages? No, I don't. Um, I was saving up for that one, and I was like going, you know, like counting down the days till I'd have enough money, and then about two days before I hit it, didn't. Get oh it. no! Yeah. And you also liked Danielle's casting of Michael Shannon as the Chief Higgins. <laughs> oh yeah, that's perfect casting. Excellent. I was watching this YouTube video the other day. I was showing you Michael Shannon reads this sorority letter. Have you ever seen this video? It was absolutely no. unhinged. Oh, shit. <laughs> no, I haven't seen that. I guess it's going to be Spirit Week or it's going to be some big sorority event. And this sorority, I guess the leader, is writing this letter to all the sorority sisters about something. And it is so messed up. But it's it's read by Michael Shannon, and it is so funny. Yeah. Anyway, I'll quote that, but uh, I'll post that anyway, or attach yeah. it to the show notes. But anyway, check that out. If you were one of the people that have told me, oh, no, boo-hoo, I can't talk to the boys, I'm too sober, then I pity you. Because I don't know how you got this far in life, and with that in mind, don't fucking show up. Unless... You're going to stop being a goddamn cocklock for our chapter. Seriously, I swear to fucking God, if I see anyone being a goddamn boner at tonight's event, I will tell you to leave. I was sold on him just based on his uh, performance in Shape of Water alone. Oh, yeah, right, he was yeah. so good in that movie. You're right, and he does play kind of like that. He plays um, a lot of very intense Yeah, but he's like a cop, too. Yeah, yeah he's kind of like that oh, noir yeah, yeah. cop. Yeah. Wow, I didn't even think of that. Did you think of that when you did that casting? No, actually, but oh. that's... What performance were you thinking of? Oh, I thought of? that was, might have been what... But no, that's that actually, yeah, that, it would have been so clever if that had actually <laughs> influenced my decision. I just... Maybe it was just subconsciously there. I just think of like absolute badass actors that I love that are maybe a little weird Mm. or something. And I like to put them. I'm like, oh, you know who I want to see just in general. Right. And then here's a role. You're clearly just in sync with Guillermo del Toro. Hey, maybe so. (laughs) Right. And then, Mark, you were also talking about that Mignola told John Arcudi the lobster's origins. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Before they started, apparently Mignola sat down, told him the story, said, like, you know, I'm paraphrasing heavily here. If you ever want to use this, you can. I assume you won't because it's so weird. And told him the origin. And, like, I get the feeling that, like, Arcudi's using that as a way to remain consistent in the way the lobster appears and all that. But I don't think he ever will bring it up. But I do, I do feel like there's definitely like um, 
little fragments of that that he just speckled into that like backstory you know just to kind of give us some vague idea but it's they're such small fragments and mixed up with so much other stuff that it's it's indecipherable right right okay I'm I'm glad to get your perspective on that too. I wanted to ask you, like, what did you think about that whole scene where they talk about the pirates and everything? I really loved it. I especially loved the uh, contrast between Cindy and Wald. You know, like she basically reads this thing and goes, "What the fuck?" And then <laughs> Wald reads it and goes, "Oh, this is fantastic. This right, is clearly great. You know, like yeah. he buys into it completely." Wow. Yeah, that's great. That's a great point. Ross Radke said. Hey, you damn guys. I'm pretty sure I figured out Lobster Johnson's true secret origin. What's that, Ross Radke? He said, member. <laughs> he said it's in the most unlikely of places, Hellboy Jr. Okay. And so we haven't read Hellboy Jr. yet. I'd love to work it into the reading order. But there's a story about a lobster woman, and she falls in love with this weird monster <laughs> guy or whatever. And so that's what he was alluding okay. to. Do you know what story I'm talking about, Mark? I saw the panels online. Uh, no, um, I remember reading uh, Hellboy Jr. a long, long time ago. Like It was like one of the very first Hellboy comics I ever read. Really? And it was already out of print back then. I'd never picked it up. And then like when you asked me under this podcast, I was like, sooner or later, that's going to come up. So I yeah. recently just bought a copy. Oh, nice. Okay. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. It, it's like it's it's on its way. So Okay. Awesome, awesome. Is that where the... I'm so sorry. Is that where they look like Powerpuff Girls? No, that's um, Itty Bitty Hellboy. Okay. Yeah, no, we'll eventually talk about that. <laughs> I, just... don't, I don't know if we'll go through the whole <sighs> stories, but um, but Hellboy Jr. is... We'll, we'll get okay, to it. Okay, well, it's a we'll fun get read. to it. It's All a right. fun read. I, I enjoy it. It's, it's a very strange read. Yes. All right. <laughs> I mean, I saw those panels that he posted online, and I was just fucking weird. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely... That's a good way to I'm describe it. I'm curious about this now. It's like a cartoon. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right on. That's a good way to describe it. Nathaniel Green, he Nathaniel was like, Green. he was so excited about this whole pirates thing. He said, this is such a big reveal and nobody ever talks about it. And then he just went, ah, or something like that. So, <laughs> sure um, was an R. <laughs> I, was, I was honestly surprised that. Like, what does he mean nobody talks about it? I mean, <laughs> okay, yeah, okay, maybe not that as much as everything else, but I mean, I remember when uh, certain issues came along. I was basically spending uh, like at least a paragraph in each review going, ah, pirates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pirates are great. I was surprised that they were trying to work in the very super epic, overcomplicated backstory. But then I remember, like, I, I know I kept bringing it up, but like, then he ends up being like an actual ghost. Like that. And it has like consequences sure. in the actual world that right. everyone is occupying. Yes. And so it's one of those things where it's like, okay. Sure. All right, then. Because that's all I ever saw of the lobster in the first place. So then it it wasn't like, because at first I was like, why are they trying to do this? Come on. But then, you know, I thought of that and I was like, well, that's fine then, I guess. <laughs> I'm okay with it. I really am. I made yeah. peace with that, like, almost immediately. <laughs> it was such a immediate... I've never switched back that fast. Right, to right. Like, like, wait, how quickly can I justify this? Hold on. Yeah, and Lobster20,000 also said, I want to know more about the Lobster Pirate Connection. But Jerry Turnbull, he had a great point. I don't think we've talked about this yet. So he said, all is not what it seems with the hand in the box. And he posted a picture, and I loved Jerry Turnbull. He didn't say, but he just posted two pictures. Oh, he'll the do pic- that. Yeah. The picture of the hand in the box and the picture of the pirate. And they're two different hands. <gasps> one is a left hand, and one is a right hand. Whoa. Well, 
Damn it, that just makes things more confusing. Haven't we <laughs> had issues with this before, though, too? Mm. Oh, left hand, you're yeah. right. Yes. There so has that's been a, a whole le- thing. There has been a whole confusion with the left hand, right hand, and the Ave Sapien. You're absolutely right. I'm just saying. But so... So then mm. is the historical document of the pirate, El Bogavante, is that wrong? It was really the other hand that had it on it? Or is the hand that I saw brought wall fabricated? Who knows? It, maybe it's not the real hand. Maybe he fabricated it. That's why it's the wrong hand. It's, or yeah. anyway, that just throws a whole other wrench into the whole confusing milieu that is this. Yeah. Okay, so I thought that it was probably another person whose hand it was. Uh. Like another person with a with a lobster claw hand. Oh, okay. You didn't read it as it was the yeah. pirate's hand. Well, no, okay, okay. I did originally. It could be, the but then hand what you just said about the two different hands. My first thought was, oh god, there's a third person. Maybe it's that guy Dasher. Maybe it was his hand. I thought it was like one of those faked. You know like how they do like a fake, like an oddity shop would be like, oh, this is a a monkey's ball. Right. Or uh, yeah. or even like this is a, a pixie and it's like oh they like sewed together a bunch of weird stuff and it's just right, kind of like weird right. something like that where they were just like oh we just got a a corpse hand and we painted a thing on it like I don't know yeah the other thing too is I mean like all the images we've seen of the pirate that's they purely exist in characters' heads I mean the historical documents aren't photographs they're right. text oh, on true. a page it would literally be left hand. Or right hand written on a page, right, which exactly. could have easily been wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I just love that detail. Thank you, Jerry, for pointing that out. Hey, damn guys, listen. Yeah, let us know what you. Think I just about love it when that. it's a thing that pops up all the time in the Hellboy universe. That you know, like they present something and you just accept it because we're so used to accepting <laughs> things at face value, right. and then it just throws in all these little bits that say, "Yeah, yeah, maybe call that into question." Yeah, you know, just, just that's maybe. great. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. That happens so many times. It's good, though, because I get, uh, I almost said episodes, I get these issues where it's like, all of a sudden, and now here's the history of the universe, the secret history, yeah. it's magic. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, cool, oh, awesome. But then later someone's like, remember that one part that we said was magic? It is magic, but in a different way. And you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> and so then the, so it's, it keeps it going. It keeps the mythology getting right, more right. and more impressive yeah. and deep and interesting. And so, it's, so I... For one, I'm totally, again, very fine with that. I'm okay with that. I have a comment that I want to make about that, but I'll have to wait until we get to a different story. Anyway. I'm in a similar situation, John. There's so many things that this particular discussion touches on that I'm like, we're not there yet. We're probably thinking of the same thing. I'll have to message you later. (laughs) Aubrey and I are almost on the same page. He's read a little bit more than I have. I don't think so. I've only, no? read, I've only read what we read for the podcast. Oh, so we've. Oh, okay. I thought no. you had somehow like come into contact with a little bit of this before. No, the only the only contact I had before the show was the movies and the animated. We've series. had this conversation so many times. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I'm so sorry. It's been a long time since we've had it. <laughs> I know. I. Whenever y'all start in on stuff like that, I'm just me and Aubrey look at each other like, okay, what are we in for? Like, what is this going to be? <laughs> it's going to be good. So much more. It creates so much more discussion. Jen Niklas said, The lobster is back and as nutty as ever. This story includes one of my favorite tropes. The hero gets chased by the police. Don't know why, but I like to see the hero chased by cops. Maybe because he can't kill them just because, oh wait, the lobster can. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he can kill them if it's justice. Yeah, there you go. There you go. He also said, this story includes one of my most hated tropes. The hero being in the right of being a vigilante. Because, because. 
I hate that. Let's be honest. The chief isn't wrong. The lobster is a nutter with a gun and a magic hand. And he's a menace. Sure, he only kills gangsters right now, but when is he going to shoot a bystander, an undercover agent, that lousy brat paperboy? Never, because the story is built around him being in the right, like every superhero story ever. It's a false conflict that never gets resolved and just turns everything right, because, because. The lobster could just blow up a bus of nuns and it would be okay because those nuns were really Nazi gorillas in clever disguises. This is one of the weakest tropes in superhero storytelling because the hero has to be right all the time. It robs us of complexity and it feels kind of patronizing. Phew, I still love my trigger-happy pulp hero because this is definitely okay. When a government starts acting like they're just a big, giant, well-funded mafia... And they've got people who are willing to go out and use deadly force to enforce this stuff that goes on in the mafia. That is also very tiresome. And I think that that's one of the things that this guy's like, well, I'll do that too, just with a couple of guys. And so whichever one you want to root for is your business. I'm going to root for the guy that's killing Nazis. I mean, I'm just going to. There's um an aspect of this that I, I find interesting because um I would disagree with Jan not in um his uh hatred of vigilantes but more um that the story's giving him uh, the lobster the okay i would say that the characters are giving him the okay but it's presented as a character flaw not a good thing right right, right. yeah 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 when i read that the other day i was like thinking that yeah that's one trope that i am kind of tired of but then i think about like the rest of the whole universe like hellboys not like that and the bprd is not like that there's more depth to it and all that right, there's right. more nuance to yeah. It than that, mm-hmm. yeah and then when you get down to the i mean but lobster johnson's written to be a pulpy character that's why we don't really know anything about him but we still got to mm-hmm. we do get to know the characters that are populating his world like yeah. his team and cindy tynan and yeah they are more nuanced yeah yeah i yeah, know i love that the yeah. fact that he has to deal with that he has to he has to deal with the fact that people he's working around and working with think that it's not okay and he's got to be like hey you got to shut up about that and she's just like no <laughs> and so i think that that's they explore that it's sure. not like yeah. it's unexplored yeah yeah, yeah. I'm just reading it like Little Hellboy. I'm just going, yeah, the lobster. <laughs> yes. Like, I'm not even thinking of it yeah. on this level. Like, sometimes I feel dumb reading like reading these comments because I'm like, wow, I didn't even think of that because I'm just enjoying it. Get the Lobster is one of my favorite lobster stories. It's probably my favorite. Mm. I was so excited to get to it. So I'm just kind of on the surface just taking it in yeah. as what it is. And, and I don't necessarily do that with the other books. But why do I do that with this one, you know? I don't know. Um, I just thought it was interesting because when I read that comment, I was like, I don't even think about stuff like that. When it comes to the lobster, I'm just like, yeah, lobster, get them. Punish the bad guys. Um. <laughs> this is one of those bits of feedback that is just so great. Like, I feel like we could revisit it every single Lobster Johnson episode and have more to add to the topic. It's one of those things that grows along with the story. And I want to say more, but I can't yet. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, excellent feedback. I feel like the uh, the way the um, the lobster character is set up where you don't know who he is. You don't know his origin. You don't know any of that stuff. And it's all kind of a mystery. That's what makes it so fun in the, you know, bang, beat up the bad guy. Because it right. does present it kind of a more simplistic way. And if he kind... But is it it, is well, it a trope for trope's sake? Or do they actually explore well, on, the on, nuances hold on, hold on. of what he's doing? Because I think they do. Well, I think that's the nuances with the characters around him. But then also, um, if they revealed in depth into his character, I feel like it would take away some of the fun of the 
comic. Well, yeah, but that's not even the point of of him. Is like who he is beyond being a lobster. Nobody cares. Some people do. <laughs> he doesn't even care. Right. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Is that like they've dispensed with the whole Bruce Wayne thing? Yeah. No. I They're like, mean... there's no Bruce Wayne. Right. It's yeah. just this guy. <laughs> No, I get it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I think that that's where, and they're like, let's just take it from there, which I thought was kind of interesting. It's an no, interesting like choice. It. Yeah. Wait, so, so you're saying that there is nothing deeper? No, it. what I'm saying is we don't even need to worry about it because that's not what that book is about. It's not about Bruce Wayne, like, ah, I'm secretly Batman. No, of course not. It's, you know, but I'm just, you know. You can't see my face, but I've got a huge grin on my face and grinning like a maniac because this is all like, oh my God, I can't wait till you read more. <laughs> <laughs> and awesome. then, of course, they're going to they're gonna reveal who he is. It's going to be a whole issue just about that. And I'll be like, this is good because of this reason. <laughs> like, I'm just going to do whatever I can to make sure that. It's kind of funny because you'll, you'll both be very happy, I think. I'll do backflips awesome. to justify awesome. how awesome it is. It is when the time comes and lobster 20,000 he said this was the first story that got me into the Mignolaverse still one of my all-time favorites that's so awesome to hear that somebody's coming in through the lobster Johnson title you know that's so cool and that that's one thing that I love about these stories too is BPRD I could see if you picked up a random issue that you might feel a little bit lost but with the lobster you could just start at almost any story and just go oh okay right okay. oh yeah, yeah kind of right yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Uh, actually, um, when I was working on the reading order back in 2014, so like in its earliest stage, it wasn't read this one, then read this one. You know, like uh, I had to kind of present the all the story dependencies and um, we'd figure that out. Uh, Scott Alley and I would figure that out. And um, Lobster Johnson just sits on a little island by itself. There's no story dependencies. You can start on. It's it's a horrifying document, by the way. If you look at it, you just oh. scream <laughs> in your brain with melt. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it's just interesting to see how like that little bit is something that you can present to someone new and like just you don't even need to read the rest of the Hellboy universe. It's just diving and enjoy this. It's going to be fun. Yeah, 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 that is so great. I shared this awesome alternate cover by Tanchi Zanyich for Get the Lobster Number One. And Duncan Figueredo retweeted me on Twitter, and he was like, great cover. He was gushing over it, and then it got all this attention from a bunch of other people, so I thought that was so cool. Man, that is super awesome. And a great cover. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I don't know if you saw this, Mark. We had uh, some feedback from Thomas Nagoski. No, I didn't see that. So he asked us on our Twitter Will you discuss Lobster Johnson novel, The Satan Factory? Okay. So I sure you, hope so. Have you read that? No, I haven't. Um, I actually haven't read a lot of the novels. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of looking forward to getting to that sort of stuff, just to experience it for the first time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, Snagoski co-wrote that with Christopher Golden. and um, No, I believe he wrote that one by himself. Oh, really? Okay, okay. I think uh, Golden might have edited. I don't know. I'll have to check. And, uh, well, Christopher Golden, he responded. He said, who wrote that? I heard he smells. <laughs> He's talking about <laughs> Snagoski. Oh. And, and then Snagoski said, like, old mayo and sorrow. <laughs> 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 anyway. Wait, so the writer of the book commented on it? Yeah, well, they both are writers. Because oh, Christopher shit. Golden, no, he, yeah. he, he's worked on some Hellboy stuff, too, in uh, Baltimore as well. Oh, wow. That's so awesome. Yeah. 
uh, Christopher Golden was the first person to write a prose novel about Hellboy, and his ones are different from the others because his are actually canon. Right, you were telling me about that. And then Snagoski yeah. was one of the co-writers on BPRD Hollow Earth, right? That's the Ryan Sook where they go underground and all that? Yes. Yeah, they had the first swing at uh, BPRD. Yeah, that is so cool. So anyway, I was excited to get some uh, attention from those guys on Twitter. And now we're going to go into our book club episode for the week. This week, we're talking about Lobster Johnson, A Chain Forged in Life. This is a one-shot published in July 2015, written by Mignola and Arcudi, art by Troy Nixie and Kevin Nolan, colors by Dave Stewart, and letters by Clem Robbins, except for the Kevin Nolan pages. He always does those colors and letters himself. The cover is by Tanchi Zanyich. And I'm so glad, Mark, that you could join us again for this episode because you very much <laughs> wanted to make sure that we got to this story on our Christmas Eve episode, right? Yeah, I wanted to, to have it themed to the season. So one thing, if, you're, if you've been following the trades, you know, we read four, Get the Lobster, and now we're jumping over to six. So you want to talk about that a little bit? We were talking about some of this offline. Yeah, Um. so uh, there's a... Th- the uh, whole thing about how um six is supposed to be five and five is supposed to be six um i don't know what happened behind the scenes uh but i think one of the stories in this collection may have been delayed and that pushed back when the trade came out and because the trades only came out three months apart by the way five and six. Oh wow um, i didn't know that yeah yeah it was really really close i think one was march the other was june um, someone's probably going to correct me on that and go, no, you're wrong. <laughs> anyway, um, the, the stories are set in, uh, 1935. So they're picking up right where they, they left off in the previous volume we read. And the next one's, uh, going to be in 1936. So yeah, you're reading them in chronological order, uh, and the order they were intended to be read. And it's just the trades came out in a funky order. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. Because, um, you, Aubrey was also asking and I was like, yeah. we're going to talk about it. I'm pretty sure it was just a single story that got delayed and ended up throwing everything off. And they didn't, it had been such a long time since the last Lobster Johnson trade had come out. They didn't want to bump it back, you know? Right, right. But you can even see, actually, um, this is an interesting thing. Uh, even uh, Tonchi Zonich, the way he designs the trade covers, he has a way that he does the covers for the um, volumes that collect multiple, like, short stories. And then for the big core ones, like uh, Get the Lobster and all that, he does, like, a a little montage type cover instead. Right. And um, actually you'll see too, he, he, he picks one primary color as the main component for the stories that are with multiple characters. So this is the blue volume. Uh, oh. uh, what is it? Satan smells a rat was the red volume, you know, like that kind of thing. Right. Okay. That's so awesome. I didn't even notice that. Oh, the colors on this cover. Yeah. I was going to bring this. Cover oh yeah. I know. Badass too. <laughs> The trade cover. Yeah. The trade paperback cover, yeah. Yeah. We were sitting here earlier, and I was like, holy shit, I just noticed that his face is a skull. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this was one of those ones where um, I got an email uh, from um, David Hyde, um, who does the publicity and everything, with this image going, hey, you get to reveal this. And I'm like, oh, oh hell cool. yes. Wow. <laughs> it looks so nice. cool. And then there's also a great issue cover by Tanchi Zanyich for this story. It's very well done. Yeah. So this story, it opens up with Kevin Nolan's art, right? We get him on this first page. He has that very distinctive style that we've come to love whenever we get to his stories. And we see these two cops driving. One asks the other, how many calls they get like this tonight? All over the country. 
And I guess they're talking about Santa. Are they talking about like calls about Santa? I guess. I mean, it could be. I mean, drunk Santa. Right. Oh, criminy, the other cop says. If it's more your social behavior talk, then let me out now. Oh, yeah, because the other, the first cop says they've been out since Thanksgiving, but you don't get calls about them till now. So I assume he's talking about Santas, right? Because the Santas start coming out <laughs> after... Uh, I don't know. Has that ever been a problem? I'm just saying it's such a weird idea. Like, where did this come from? I don't, anyway. I just... I don't know. I, I'm imagining my head Dan Aykroyd from Trading Places as he's dressed as Santa being drunk <laughs> on the side of a road. And that's kind of what I was thinking. Like, There's, there's a, whole a history bunch of... of people hiding in costumes. Yeah. Oh, so oh, okay. There's a whole history of uh, people in costumes hiding behind beards acting badly. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Wow. Look up SantaCon sometime. Oh, man. <laughs> Oh, John Oliver did something it's on that recently. <laughs> <laughs> I like this other comment that he makes towards the cop. He says, I swear if you trot out that word zeitgeist again. <laughs> Hold on. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. So they almost run over this guy in a Santa getup. And they get out and they ask him what he's doing out there. How'd I end up here? Is that what you asked? Woo! Don't be lighting any matches around this one, the cop says. And I like how they give him like these blue little drunk stars or whatever around his head to (laughs) denote that. And so the Santa tells his story. And so now we cut over to Troy Nixie's art. Yeah, that's so interesting how they do that. that. And he starts telling a story that starts a few hours ago on the Upper West Side. Oh, you gotta gotta read it like, you know, with the right inflection because this is poetry. It is. So that's what I was going to talk about. So it has this um, it has this kind of cadence as we're narrating Santa's side of the story. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just love this. It's it's like immediately like you've got this drunk Santa wandering, wandering around and now you're going to get drunk Santa's Christmas Carol. It's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> it was a few hours ago on the Upper West Side where the last day was ending for the children's toy drive. Martell's department store had just closed for the night. But the noises from within didn't sound all right. And so as this is going through, we see Santa. This is the one that we saw earlier. He's staying out there trying to call for donations for the toy drive. And he's cold out there, so he starts drinking. He has this bottle of whiskey that he starts drinking. And I couldn't really tell what kind this was. I was trying to look at the label, but... I couldn't really find anything. It's probably some cheap, cheap whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we see him drinking that. And then when it says sounds from within, so he turns around and looks towards the toy store. And then somebody comes bursting out of the window like they've been shot. And what little magic was still in the season disappeared completely. No more carols or poems, only blood and broken glass. And fear, plenty of fear. And so we see these three guys... These monster-looking guys, they come out with guns, and it looks like they've robbed the place, right? And so there's three guys here. I think this one is Eugene. There's another one named Stets. And then uh, this guy with the glasses is... Do you remember that one's name? Bags. Bags. There you go. He was called Bags. And he's holding the bags, right? And as they're coming out of the store, they push the Santa aside. And they're like, move it. Yes, hurry. And meet Justice. The lobster appears, standing on top of a car, and the mobsters are like, he just came out of nowhere. He came out of nowheres. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Then I assume that means he can go right back there, and he'd best be quick about it, unless he'd like to see Father Christmas get a full dose in the brain, and so they stick up the drunk Santa. Someone walking here. Right, yeah. (laughs) There's someone walking here. 
And so they take the Santa hostage and they screech off in their cars. The gang headed to New Jersey, their bags loaded with money. Yeah. Martell's at closing on Christmas Eve. After all, the take must have been huge. And so Martell's, that's an actual department store, right? But I think it has two L's, the real one, and this one has one L. So that's one thing that I noticed. But it was around during this time. Hmm. So as they're in the car, this guy, Eugene, he asks Santa, I love this, he says, why have you burdened yourself? Meaning the giant sack of toys that Santa's taken with him, even though he's a hostage, right? And Santa says he couldn't leave the toys. When they let him go, he'll give them to the children's aid organization. You will let me go, he asks. Santa, what must you think of us to ask a question like that? And then they all start laughing at him. They continue driving in the snow, and suddenly, one of the tires blows out. The driver, he bets the boss a saw buck, which is $10, I guess? Oh, it's apparently named because a saw buck is shaped like a cross, and uh, the $10 bill back then had a um, Roman numeral on it. Oh, okay. okay. Neat. He bets the boss that he can fix this tire in 15 minutes or less. They mention that they think the boss is giving this guy, Carl, too hard of a time. I guess that he's got to get him to the safe house or something like that, right? And so I like here Santa asks if he can keep drinking. Why would I mind? You're not driving, Eugene says. That's like the head gangster. So Santa just keeps boozing it up. Might as well. I mean, you've just been kidnapped by gangsters. (laughs) (laughs) Fifteen minutes later, the boss has won the ten bucks he'd rather not have, and he goes to yell at Carl, but instead he sees those familiar goggles in the white. Nice. This is a great job by Troy Nixie. I like uh, like his art. We've never seen him on this story before. I've read some of his other stuff that he's done afterwards, but um, he's got a very distinctive style. I really like the creepiness that he puts on the lobster. Have you ever read um, Jenny Finn that he did with Mike Mignola? Oh yeah, no, I have read Jenny. Um, that's a great one. Yeah, it's it. I think he's a, a very good match for this story, just because you know, like he's he's got a kind of uh, mad frenetic quality that he's very good at capturing. Yeah, yeah. It's got a wibbly wobbly, almost like a psychedelic feel to it. Like it's like those old school keep on trucking, okay, kind of a thing. Almost. Right, right. I just think if you're going to have a story narrated by a drunk Santa, like this, yeah, is absolutely. The right <laughs> answer, yeah. for sure. In case anybody wanted to know, ten dollars in uh, in 1935 would be 187 dollars in today's money. Wow, that's crazy. I don't know why I looked that up. <laughs> <laughs> and so when Eugene sees the lobster. They just take off in the car, even though the tire hasn't been changed. What are they driving on? Just the, the wheel? Yeah, exactly. Jeez. So the Santa keeps narrating, but there's only so far you can drive on a bare rim. Yeah. So the flight continued on foot. Check that on frozen solid feet. And so we see Eugene, Bags, and Santa walking through the snow. And then this other guy, Stets, has the shotgun. And so Santa's still carrying the giant bag of toys with him. And right here, Bags, he calls the money Mazuma. He says, it ain't feathers, let me tell ya. And so that comes from the Yiddish Mezumen, meaning cash. Eugene says, there must be a cottage nearby. And then they come across this cabin. Santa says, it was as if God had heard a cabin, but after hours of walking, it looked a lot more like a dream to me. That's a wicked looking cabin. It's got a castle-like look to it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so they go inside, 
and their boss says their lodging could be more cozy. One of them should get some firewood, but they can't make Santa do it. So the boss tells Bags to do it, but he says a guy'd have to be loco going out there without heat. Your logic is impenetrable here. Eugene says as he passes over the gun. I really like that. <laughs> yeah. And so I like this bottom panel. We see that the lobster is watching them. And we can tell because we're like looking through his goggles. We're seeing the reflection of bags going outside to look for firewood. It's like a cheetah looking at its prey or something like that, right? <laughs> so bags, he goes out and he finds like some twigs or whatever. What is the stuff that he finds on the... Yeah, like kindling and shit. Yeah, it's just like kindling or something. And he's like, oh, this will be great. But then all of a sudden he smells gasoline and then all of it ignites in flame. And so he's like, oh, he got it from the car. So the lobster's like taking all the gasoline out of the car, which is awesome. Yeah. I like that panel. There's a nice bit of foreshadowing we'll have to discuss later. Uh, You'll see. Oh, okay. <laughs> Bag says, can't see a damn thing. And then the lobster emerges from the fire. And he's, like, dual-wielding guns. I thought that was so awesome. I was like, yes, this is great. So, like, what is this? Is he, like, he's just walking through the fire? Is he fireproof or what? Or he's just going so quickly he's not going to get burned? Or what is this that's happening here? Well, I mean, he could have some, like, fire-resistant clothing. We saw that he had, like, the padded stuff and some of the... He's adopted some padded gear and some bulletproofing. So, maybe it's a, it is fire-resistant. I don't know. Well, I mean, he's a uh, he's wearing, like, a pilot's outfit. Maybe they have some fire resistance because right. of the crashes. Or, okay. Sure, uh, sure. You know. no, that makes sense. Well, there's also that line from Santa where he says, Nobody can say what happened out there because nobody really knows. Yeah, this is an exaggerated uh, account. Been clearer. You know what I mean? And then he he walked through the fire like he was some kind of a fire demon. You know, like, <laughs> this fucking drunk-ass guy. But the end results couldn't be clearer. And they just hear all this cracking from outside. So the Santa's like, oh, that sounded like... And Eugene's like, yeah, it's a lobster keeping very close tabs on us. As I hoped he wouldn't, but I thought he might. And he also says if Santa weren't there with them, the lobster would have already kicked in the door or burnt down the cabin. And I was like, yeah, he would have done that, right? <laughs> he, yeah. really, he really would have. Eugene doubts the lobster knows that they only have one gun and they're down to the last two rounds. So they have to be extra careful until morning at least. But like, why? The lobster is going to leave when the sun comes up or what? Like, what is that about too? Because they're like, oh, as long as we last the night, we'll be fine. But like, what? what is the logic behind that? Oh, yeah. Maybe they Wouldn't the lobster like... still be there? Maybe they don't realize that. I still that. think they think he's a bit of a ghost. Right. Okay. Like, huh. maybe they think he's got to make his bedtime or something. <laughs> right. That's true. He gets grumpy if he doesn't get enough sleep. <laughs> <laughs> he pulls up the blanket to go to sleep and says, justice. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what? I just suddenly imagine him waking up the next morning drinking his coffee. Mm, justice. Like, this, everything is justice. I'm going to start doing that. <laughs> Santa realizes that the other guy's not coming back. And he's like, we'll freeze. And Eugene says, they can't burn the cash. But Stet says, Santa's bag is probably full of kindling. That's a whole day's work for me, Santa says. And what about the kids? What about them? Dump it all on the floor. And Santa's like clutching at the bag. So far this Christmas Eve, I'd seen murder, robbery, and kidnapping at gunpoint. Don't ask me why, but this seemed a lot sadder. And so they're like taking out all the toys and breaking them up to throw in the fire. And so 
Um, they say, like, it's a start, but it's going to burn through really quick. So Eugene asks if they have anything more substantial. Still looking. And then so they find this wooden train. He's like, oh, this will be great. No, you can't. Not that, Santa says. Can't you see it's handmade, not store-bought? Somebody carved that especially for a little boy or girl and donated it. Yeah, it is nice, Stet says. Should make a pretty flame, and he just throws it in the fire. Jeez. I know, that really gets, like, I don't know what it is about, like, you know, like the book and the ukulele, that's bad, but that one, oh, that really gets me. Yeah. yeah. It was absurd to expect any different from him, Santa narrates, or to expect that his actions could change me from within. Somehow, the magic of the season, the lilt I'd lost, had returned. For in the raging fire, a glimmer of hope burned. Hope for me, at least, and my well-worn soul. The money lost didn't matter. No, I had a new goal. And so Santa's, like, watching the train burn. And we also see Eugene is, like, playing with this laser gun or, like, death ray. It's, like, one of the toys that's in the bag. It is the coolest looking toy. (laughs) It is really cool. That's a great design on that. Yeah. I wonder I if it's based on, like, a real one or something like that. It kind of has that style to it. I don't know, but that's something Skeleton Crew should make. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. As Santa is watching the train burn, all of a sudden all this smoke starts coming out of the fireplace. And so they're like, oh, the damper probably fell. You know, so Stets goes over to adjust it, and when he reaches his hand in there, like, something grabs him and pulls him against the fireplace. He hits his head against it. And he's like, damn, something's got me. Give me a hand. You heard the man St. Nick, Eugene says, grab him. But Stets just gets pulled up into the fireplace. That is so crazy. They should have expected something. Right, you know? yeah. I, I like how this is like a reverse Santa Claus, too. Like he's getting yeah. pulled up into the <laughs> into the chimney by Lobster Johnson. Man. So Eugene yells to put the fire out. It's not too late to do that. So then Santa's like batting the fire with the bag, trying to put it out. As all this is happening, Eugene hears a sound. Remember, he's got those two rounds left in the gun. And he turns around and he sees like the lobster's goggles in the window behind Santa. And so he's like, the vigilant vigilante is here. Do you see me? Well, I see you too. And he like blows through the window with the shotgun And so we get this one panel where we see it from far away. He just gets totally shot. We see, like, all this blood and stuff coming out of the back. So he's like, you think the lobster's been shot right here? Goodbye, lobster. (laughs) You weren't too smart for me, Eugene says. And that's it. I win. It's all over. No, it isn't. And we have Santa there with the death ray gun. My new goal was to live. But to live right. To live well. Or at least long enough to send Eugene to hell. (laughs) and so he's holding the death ray like he's going to shoot eugene with it and then eugene's like are you drunk or insane that's a toy and santa's like well it's made of metal and i can bash your head in with it i know that you're out of ammunition so it just comes down to who's stronger does it now eugene says and so he has one more shell for the shotgun and he's like so what it really comes down to is who's faster who's bolder and he loads the gun and then, so, when we turn the page, we get this awesome panel. The lobster appears in the window behind Santa. And so, Santa's shooting the death ray, but the lobster is, like, shooting both of the guns. He's dual-wielding, and he's just, like, unloading on Eugene. 
really great panel, really awesome colors too by Dave Stewart. Yeah. And so I like that. Like, does Santa think that he shot the guy with the death ray? When it first happened, I bet he thought he did for a split second. Well, he's all drunk too, so he doesn't yeah. like really, I don't know, like so much darkness out there. Where's the light? On this bloodiest of eaves, it's nowhere in sight. So we create our own light when we can, where we are, just as I make rather merry at my favorite bar. We see Santa holding the death ray. So then on this last page, we get back to Kevin Nolan's art. And so we can see Bags, the guy with the glasses. The lobster had, you know, put that thing over his mouth. And that's the one that really got shot. It wasn't the lobster that got shot in the window. Yeah. It was actually this guy that got shot instead. So the cops are coming across this. Switching from back to to, to Nolan's art, it's just like it's like all of a sudden he's like, "Oh right, this guy was drunk." <laughs> right. And yeah. This is the more the sober realization of what's going on. Yeah. No, you're right, and even the colors are kind of like the stark bright of day. Yeah. And I also like that Nolan is following the cops too. It's kind of like that's their point of view is his artwork or yeah. their part of the story. One of these guys is like, oh, well, this rundown shack doesn't quite match the old fellow's descriptions. Uh, and if the details don't line up perfectly, then the body of the story checks out. Or should I be saying bodies? Good one, right? <laughs> All this time I've heard about the terrible lobster. I never really bought it. I'm just thanking Michael Griffin himself. We got the story out of Santa's South tonight. And so we see that they have drunken Santa in the back of the car. The state he's in. I doubt he'll remember any of it come morning. And he's holding the the burnt train. It's kind of burned a little bit, but yeah. he's still got it. So Aww. he salvaged it out of there. And it ends with this quote from A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends to which, if persevered in, they must lead. And so the rest of that is, but if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. And so this is a line said by Scrooge. And he basically means if he changes his attitude, he can change the course of his life. It's not too late to make amends for his past wrongs. Yeah, so what would you think about that one? I thought that was a good story for our Christmas Eve episode. It's always nice to have a good uh, ghost story for Christmas. A nice tradition there. Yeah. Um, the, the panel I was talking about earlier, back when the fire was set, um, you'll notice as soon as the fire ignites, you've got the bags' glasses go orange. And they're perfectly round just to kind of give you a hint of who is really at the window when they fire later on when we oh, see those you're right. yeah that's a great detail yeah. good job there i love i that. like that they do that but you know like uh, there's that element too of like um, when we get to to outside and he gets shot the lobster isn't anywhere inside it's just this one guy and i love the ambiguity there because um i don't know i'm i'm still not convinced that uh lobster johnson is a mortal person and uh I, I don't necessarily think he has a body as such, if that makes sense. Mm, okay. I get the feeling he basically, vil I get the feeling he villain jumps, basically. Um, whenever he gets killed, he just jumps to another villain and becomes the lobster. Wow. You're blowing my mind right now, Mark. <laughs> That's a pretty cool theory. Well, it's just like, it's one of those things where when we first saw him in um, Conqueror Worm, we see this uh, body get up that's in Nazi clothes. And get like getting up, and, and then right. later that becomes the lobster. That and, becomes and we always him. assumed, oh, that's just a ghost coming back. But what if that wasn't a ghost coming back? What if that's how he's always been his entire career? Oh my god! Oh, shit, <laughs> I love that. That's so amazing. Because I mean, like, there are so many times in these stories where he like 
there's just like how did he possibly survive that he died like you know he's he would have died right he's in a zeppelin that blows up and then all of a sudden he's crawling out of the rubble yeah yeah amazing amazing theory i love that thank you for sharing that i love that it's open enough that you know it could be true or it could be out of nonsense yeah i'm gonna be thinking about that over the next stories that we read well and then didn't he also like jump into johan for a while yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you think yeah. about it, and that Damn. would make sense for him to to uh, gravitate towards that character. Oh man, that just blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Something for the reread, right? The next story we're going to discuss is Lobster Johnson, the Forgotten Man. This is a one shot published in April of 2016, written by Mignola and Arcudi, art by Peter Snybeer. So we get some art from him again. Colors by Dave Stewart and letters by Clem Robbins. Yeah, but great cover by Tanchi Zanyich here. I love that it's just the shadow of the lobster. We don't even get him in the actual cover. And I know you guys said it before, but it's very uh, Batman the Animated Series. Right, yeah, especially this cover. Yeah, that, that whole, like, you know, the title screens. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. I don't know about you, but whenever I see the um, the uh, Tanchi Zanyich, um thumbnails for these covers in the back, all the variants, I'm just like, oh, I wish he could have drawn all of them. I know, <laughs> yeah. so great. I love all those different designs. Jason Abaddon was actually talking about he would love to have a page of those thumbnails. Like that's a great uh, that would be a great mm-hmm. page to have. It's oh, just yeah, like the cool. roughs of like the different thumbnail designs. I would love that. Yeah, that that's kind of something I want to do one day. Is like you know just get like uh, all the different elements that go into a page lined up, framed together. So you know like script page, thumbnails, and then final page. You know, and then uh, you know like a print with the colors. Oh wow, awesome. that's a great idea. That'd be sweet. <laughs> don't know if I'll ever be able to pull that off, but it'd be awesome to do it. <laughs> now you have to. Just get one of the existing page. Use one of the existing pages you already have and just try and get the the ancillary stuff around it. Right? <laughs> it's that simple, Mark. Yeah, that's simple. <laughs> so this story opens in the winter of 1935, and we open on the shanty towns. These are settlements of impoverished buildings and they're usually made of like plywood, metal, and cardboard boxes. A lot of these did exist at this time. I'll talk a little bit more about this one in particular as we go on, because there is a lot of historical fiction wrapped up in this story. Our main character is Isaiah Thatcher, and the story opens with him looking for his friend Maury. He asks his other friend Eugene if he's seen him. Another character, Sutton, is also missing. And so we just had a a guy named Eugene in the previous story who was a bad guy, but in this story it's not the same guy and it's it's his friend, right? Eugene says he's going to Brother Frank's sermon, not for the Jesus train, but for some hot food. They can look for Maury later, but Isaiah passes on that. He says, maybe later. We cut over to the Herald Tribune to Cindy Tynan. And she's frustrated replacing a typewriter ribbon. Have you ever tried to replace one? I think I have. I think I probably have. Yeah, it's it's really hard, right? Just, yeah, just throw the typewriter away. <laughs> <laughs> I think like I tried to put one on an old typewriter, and it just I never got it to work. Yeah, hmm. I used to enjoy doing that. Like, I had a typewriter, and I actually enjoyed the whole reloading process. I don't know why. Just something in my brain. I had the same thing with um, you know, the old film cameras. I loved changing the film in those. Oh, nice. I think maybe it's just like not knowing how to do it. If you know how to do it, I'm sure it's very satisfying. But when you're just fumbling with it like Cindy Tynan is here, I'm sure that uh, it's not as fun. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I um, 
I got really good at it when I was going through uh, film school um, and we had a shoot where um, we didn't really have a good location to change the film over and they basically had this room where they close the door and be pitch black and they'd be like, oh, that, you know, that won't ruin the film when you change it through there. So I was like, okay, yeah, I'll do that. And I just did it like no eyes, just. Oh, you learned to do it in the dark. That is so cool. (laughs) Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Cindy, she seems kind of annoyed at first with Isaiah coming in and she's like, how did you get in here? How'd you get past security? But he introduces himself and he's very cordial. And he's like asking her for some of her time. He has a friend that went missing. The bulls, I mean, police don't seem to care. What was he going to say there? Where he said bulls. Did they call police bulls? I'm I'm not sure for a second. Bef- I he thought gonna he was going to say about the bullshit squad. I thought some, was, that, yeah, that's what I thought. Was he going to say know. the bullshitters or something like that? Or I don't know. I, I thought he was going to say some bullshit. But he's like, they don't seem to care. But I thought the paper could draw some attention to it. Wait, maybe he was going to say the bullshit police. Smith. Oh, okay. And so like he that. was all like, oh wait, let me change my language. Right. Quickly looking up, and uh, it says uh, the bulls. Uh, so called uh, bulls. It's an American term usually referred to railroad police, but also may indicate regular police officers. Oh, okay. okay. So okay. they did call them that. Thank you for uh, getting that piece of yeah, trivia so it's, there, Yeah, uh, so it's from a page about old-timey slang. Nice, nice. Isaiah mentions that a couple of people have gone missing at Camp Thomas Paine. And Camp Thomas Paine was home to dozens of World War I veterans. They lived in these shanty towns in the West 70s near the Hudson River. And they were also called Hoovervilles. A Hooverville was a shantytown built during the Great Depression by the homeless in the United States. They were named after Herbert Hoover, who was the president during the time, during the onset of the Depression, and he was widely blamed for it. The term was coined by Charles Mickelson, publicly chief of the Democratic National Committee. There were hundreds of Hoovervilles across the country during the 1930s, and hundreds of thousands of people lived there. There were many other items renamed to mock Hoover during this time, such as the Hoover Blanket was an old newspaper used for a blanket. A Hoover flag was an empty pocket turned inside out. Hoover leather was cardboard used to line a shoe after the sole had worn through. And a Hoover wagon was an automobile that had horses hitched to it, often with the engine removed. I think I remember my grandfather talking about a Hoover flag back when I was a kid. Wow, okay. But I mean, he died when I was 11, so I might be misremembering that. <laughs> Maybe he was like, you didn't have money, or he didn't have money, and he said he used that term? Probably. To... Well, you know, you said it was like a, a common term, and he, yeah. and he lived through the Depression. Right. So. Interesting. They do a good job with the old-timey slang in yeah. these books. I really like it. They really do. Cindy says the transient from these Hoovervilles... They come and go all the time. Isaiah says they leave, but they don't go missing. His friend wouldn't have just taken off. And Cindy's like, you have to see this from my point of view. Which is what? We're all a bunch of hobos, Isaiah asks. Drifters? Who's going to miss us? That your point of view, he asks. Want to know how I got past your security? I was a first sergeant in the 369th during the war in France. I learned a few things there, you might say. And Maury, he graduated summa cum laude from Powell University. We're people, see? We have lives. And then she's like, hold on, Mr. Hatcher. He's like, ah, forget it. Here I'm thinking, you being all cozy with a lobster that may be, but if the cops won't do nothing and the papers won't, why in the hell would he? And he just walks out. So the 369th Infantry Regiment, formerly known as the 15th New York National Guard Regiment, 
and commonly referred to as the Harlem Hellfighters, was an infantry regiment in the New York Army National Guard during World War I and World War II. The regiment consisted mainly of African Americans, though it also included a number of Puerto Rican Americans during World War II. It was known for being one of the first African American regiments to serve with the American Expeditionary Forces during World War I. Before the 15th Regiment was formed, any African American who wanted to fight in the war had to enlist in the French or Canadian armies. Isn't that messed up? Fuck. Wow. The regiment was nicknamed the Black Rattlers. The nickname Men of Bronze was given to the regiment by the French, and Hellfighters was given to them by the Germans. During World War I, the 369th spent 191 days in the frontline trenches, more than any other American unit. They also suffered the most losses of any American regiment, with 1,500 casualties. Two medals of honor and numerous distinguished service crosses were awarded to the members of the regiment. The French government also awarded the Croix de Guerre to 170 individual members of the 369th. So I thought that was really interesting, you know, that there's this whole, you know, you can really go down a rabbit hole with the Harlem Hellfighters. If you look that up, there's a lot of um, articles written about that. The Wikipedia for it is fairly extensive. There's a lot of different individuals within there specifically named, you know, who are famous from this regiment. And he also mentioned Powell University. So there's a Powell Library at UCLA, which would have already been built during this time. And there's a Northwest College in Powell, Wyoming, but there's no actual Powell University that I could find. Maybe it existed at this time, or it might just be fictional. Anyway, after Isaiah walks out, we just get these two panels of Cindy, and she, you know, you can tell that she feels guilty about what he said. And then she reaches for the phone. The lobster phone. (laughs) (laughs) We cut over to the Thomas Paine camp, the Hooverville, and there we see this guy Frank He's doing like a sermon with all the other transients. And he's saying, men want to control things, but most of them are just weak. You, you need guidance, a higher power, brother, structure, direction. A soul wanders without that. And so we see Eugene and Isaiah. And Eugene's like, oh, you know, I'm not here for that. He's just there for the food. Ah, I see. The way to the man's soul is through his stomach, Frank says. Okay, all right. So he reveals the hot stove with all the bowls. And then we see everybody eating it, and they're like, oh, damn, this dude's greasy as an axle. Love to hold food hostage from starving people unless they listen to my fucking religious Exactly, spiel. right. A fucking asshole. And as Isaiah is eating his soup, he crunches down on something, and he's like, ah, oh, geez, and he looks at it, and it's the Powell University ring. Oh, no, the bastard's a cannibal. And so we've had references to other cannibals back when we read Lobster Johnson, The Burning Hand. Wald and Isog had a basement full of cannibals or something like that that popped out at the end. So This took such a fucking turn. Yeah. It really did. So suddenly. So. I was just like, what, <laughs> what in the fuck? I was not expecting that at all. 
And as soon as they call him a cannibal, <laughs> Frank starts ringing his bell, and then all these other cannibals jump out. And the art by Snyberg is just oh, incredible geez. here as he does this. It's a very kind of it reminds me like of Tales from the Crypt or those old EC comics, you know, yeah. cre- creep show that kind of style. This is so fucking non sequitur that it's actually scary. Like it's <laughs> yeah, it's such a <laughs> what's happening? Like I don't know what's happening, and it's so fucking that would be fucking scary. Where you're yeah. just like you think you're gonna get a bowl of stew, and then a bunch of ravenous yeah. monsters <laughs> jumps out. Like what the fuck? Well, before before they jump out, you realize yeah. you're eating your friends too. That is oh, very no. fucked up and yeah. upsetting. But then it so you haven't had a chance to process. Yeah, that that's information, what I'm saying. It's a- and then this shit happens. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Is it's very like oh what oh, we're eating people. Oh, what's happening now? Like it's just very. It just keeps go. It just keeps ramping up harder and harder. Anyway. Mm. I love that he actually rings the dinner bell for the cannibals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so mm. funny. Here's where I think that historical fiction really comes into play because then Isaiah and some of the other guys, they start fighting these things off. If you start thinking about the military background and all that kind of stuff, and we see this with the BPRD, they'll just pick something up and just start swinging at people. So I love that. You know, Isaiah picks up this stick and he's like, don't run, stand up and fight. No free dinner tonight, freak. And he like are batting off these cannibals and one of them jumps at him from behind. It's about to get him. But then, blam, he gets shot out of the sky. Man, I had to say, when I turned the page and he started whooping zombie ass, or, sorry, cannibal ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I was like, oh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Kind of zombie-esque, though. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I was like, oh, thank you, somebody's actually kicking ass and right. not running. Sure, you know? no, that's a good point. Holy cow, the lobster. And so we get this great panel. The lobster's there, so Cindy did call him. And he's there with all his crew. We see Lester, Bob, Bill, and Harry McTell with a shotgun. And so Isaiah, like, even in the midst of all this, I love this panel where he's like, he came. He's all happy, you know. Yeah. And the lobster's just, like, blowing people away. And even in this next panel, like, I love that Isaiah's just there, like, standing watching them his he's wide-eyed just watching the lobster and his crew just like blow all these people away it's great i love the lobster's hero pose yeah <laughs> he's got a great one so this is this is some kind of weird magic shit though right like they're the, not guy the, the cannibals well yeah but they're not just like hey we're hunting down humans and catching them and eating them because that's what we eat. like they're like ah they're all fucking yeah yeah so because you're saying cannibals like oh these are people who eat people but it's not they're not well i was just um, calling deciding them... to eat people like they're all weird well no i mean i was calling i was just calling them cannibals because that's what they were calling them no no, yeah, no, no yeah. i know yeah, but, but uh, what yeah. i'm saying is what's behind that is yeah, like yeah. some kind of mystical oh, I'm, I'm... weird shit right yeah, like it totally reads like, you know, there's some bizarre like cannibal cult in the sewers. Right, right. And they've alluded to that a couple times. And so the lobster calls for them to go check out to see what this is all about. They go down to the tent and they're inspecting all the, there's this grisly shot of all the contents of the stew and you can see like bones in there and stuff like that. Believe it or not, I felt that's a little more disturbing than a lot of the other yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, just the watch and the jawbone, and I was just like... Why are you leaving pocket watches and buttons and stuff? Right. Stew, though, like, why? <laughs> Not a good job there, yeah. Yeah, I don't think he went to chef school. I yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you dig further, there's probably full clothing in there, too. Oh. Right. And a shoe. And so the lobster's shoe. like, oh, well, I saw him crawling on his belly back into the sewer with the rest of his brood, feeding on the weak of us like right. a maggot. But we've got him now. 
Gross. You know, Isaiah tells the lobster about his friend Eugene. Now he's missing, and he was there in the previous scene when all the cannibals were unleashed. And so then we get this scene where Harry called Cindy, you know, to tell her that he's going down there, you know, and to call the police. It made me think about in the last story, he was calling her to invite her over to the match. And then at the end of Get the Lobster, he wrote her like this thank you note and sent her flowers and stuff like that. So I feel like there is a connection between those two characters, you know, and he is calling her to tell her that he's going to call the police. But I think he's also calling her to tell her, hey, I'm about to do this really dangerous thing, too. And so, like, if something, you know what I mean? Or I don't know. Well, I mean, he ends it say, with saying, like, don't worry about me, Cindy. I promise I'll still be fine. Right, you right. Know, so it's like he is calling to say, right, yeah. Hey, this, I thought there, there was some kind of connection. Yeah, there, they don't know? really talk about it too much. At least they haven't yet. But, um, you know, they, that, that's another thing that's been reoccurring over the different stories. I mean, it's like you would, it'd be like if you were calling, like, your, your significant other to say, hey. Yeah, yeah. You know. So Cindy, you know, she doesn't think that this is a good idea, but he's like, just call the police. And then on this bottom shot where we see them all in the sewer, um, the lobster and all his crew, I just love that panel. What an amazing lineup there. And they've all got, like, Bill has the helmet with the light on it, and it's just a great look. They're all kind of different, too. You know, I like that, too. So they go down into the sewer, and they're looking around. They're trying to figure out which way he went, but they quickly run across the guy. And they shine the light on him and like he, I like how he like covers his face like a vampire or something. Yeah. <laughs> you came after me all this time. I thought I had to be careful. All this time I figured you as smart, but you're stupid. And so, oh no, there's more cannibals. They come out but of the water. Are, these are monsters, are they not? I mean, these are full-fledged monsters. Yeah. Like, I mean, uh, yeah. Those and, aren't people. And just like Mark was saying, they've built into the mythology that there are cannibals living the, living in the sewer and there's a cannibal cult. They're like under the sewage water with shit and piss. Yeah. And they have like fangs and claws yeah. and they're all like, they look like mummified corpses. Like these are monsters. So what what do you think about that? How is that oh, happening? Yeah. I don't know. Like what the fuck? There's more and more magic leaking into this. Uh-huh universe that we're seeing whereas like with hellboy it was immediately everything is magic and so this is kind of like oh you think it's just about the gangsters see but there's magic stuff happening so it's kind of it makes me think of like um the fungus stuff yeah you know in in hell on earth and stuff like that is there something like that Mm. that's maybe infecting these guys or something we're going to reveal a little bit more in this story i feel like there's so much more to it than that just because like you know, they they were mentioned, um, like, you know, they show up all the way back in uh, 1932 in um, The Burning Hand. They're showing up here. They are mentioned in um, The Iron Prometheus in 1937. Yes. So there's a five-year chunk of just cannibals, at least. So mm-hmm. um, I feel like, yeah, there's definitely, like, it's not like uh, this guy here, you know, created these cannibals. They've been around for a while, and he's more just taking advantage, you know? Yeah. Sure, yeah. right. But I I guess what I'm saying is, like, it's not like there's a group of people like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to hunt down some people, and we're going to kill them and eat them. Like, these are, mm. like, these are, like, monsters. these are monsters. Yeah, yeah. This is a monster we're dealing with. Yeah. Well, I, I guess like, that's I what was... I was, like, I meant with the cult thing. Right, like, right, I, right. I figured, like, you know, it's sort of like, you know, like they've tapped into some magical thing. That yeah, I don't just think like, this guy is causing them to another place. The magic. I think, like you're right. He's just like, ah, here's a bunch of monsters. I'm gonna right. be the leader of the monsters. But it's kind of like. Well, I mean, I feel like when they're talking about cannibals, they're not talking about real cannibals. I mean, they figured this is just what they call zombies because they sure. don't have an, they oh, don't have the word okay. for it. Absolutely, <laughs> that's totally fine. What I'm saying is, like, what's the deal yeah. with this? Yeah, yeah. I guess is what I'm. <laughs> and as all this is going on. 
Frank is just like super gleeful about this whole thing as the zombies are attacking the lobster and his crew. And these action shots are just so great. There's so much kinetic energy to these. And I can just hear all the sound effects. And Clem Robbins does a really good job also here with all the different sound effects. And we just get some great panels of the lobster and his crew just going to town on these zombies, cannibals, whatever. Jesus, it's like they're all here, every last one of them, McTell says. Degenerate savages. I have death enough for you all, the lobster says. And he goes to reload his gun, but then he's pulled back by all the cannibals and he loses the clip. So he just starts bashing them with the butt of the gun, which is so awesome. And he's just like getting dogpawed by all these things. That is one of the most lobster moments ever. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, I li- like, you can see, every, like, his companions are panicked. Like, the monsters are going nuts. But I just love that he is like, it's like he's sitting, you know, like in a factory where he's got to hammer something relentlessly. He's just like, yeah, I've got to just keep hammering. I'll get through this. Yep. Gonna hammer all the cannibals with my gun. <laughs> awesome. And yeah, you're right, Mark. They do panic and they're like, oh no, they got the boss. I'm almost out of ammo. And then all of a sudden, one of the zombies gets hit in the head by a rock, and it's the Harlem Hellfighters. It's Isaiah nice. and all his crew from the Camp Thomas Payne, Hooverville, and then they just start going to town on all the cannibals. So I love this. So the lobsters save them, Hell and then yeah. they come into the sewer to save the lobster and his crew. Super good. Solidarity. Yeah. Yes. It's just some great mm. shots here of all this action. I don't know. I just, the, the, everything about this story is like, I turn the page, you know, like they're about to get beat and then they turn the page and there's these guys. I'm like, fuck yeah, give me more of this shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I could use with a lot less of people waiting around in sewers. Like that's not every movie or oh, comic okay. book or TV show where people are walking around in fucking sewage. I'm just like, that is raw sewage. <laughs> Do not walk in there. It's so gross. The cannibals did get the lobster and they have him over at their hideout, I guess. And we also see Eugene there, too. And he's like, I hope you have a plan for getting us out of here, because I sure don't. And then Frank comes in. He doesn't have a plan. Me, I got plans. And so he wants to talk to the lobster. And he's like, you don't remember me. You should. You put four bullets into me. You missed the part where he said, scram with this mope. <laughs> scram with this mope. See, I want to talk to my pal here for a second. You like that? (laughs) He says, that's right, we're pals. Don't you remember me? You should. Put four bullets into me, but then you do that to everybody, don't you? And so we reveal that he's one of the Casaro brothers from Get the Lobster. And so after the lobster shot that guy, and then the car crashed, and the other brother died, but he apparently survived, and so we see him crawling away from the wreckage. He's the boss of all these weirdos. Yeah, he's like, it was me behind the sewer. All the sewer weirdos. I'm their boss. (laughs) (laughs) And as they're talking, he has the lobster's empty gun, and then he reaches into the lobster's, like, utility belt or whatever to get the clip. And he loads the gun, and he's about to shoot at the lobster. Why do these maniacs and wackos do what I say? How I control them? They're dogs, Kassaro. Feed them, and they'll follow you anywhere. And the lobster punches at this one cannibal that's holding him and then he throws one of his grenades matt would love that panel right there where the grenade is falling through the air and we just get this great boom panel and then in the aftermath we reveal casaro he's still alive and with his last 
dying breath he's like no you're wrong about that not because i feed i'm smart you're stupid didn't kill me but i was the one in charge i'm in control and so he pulls back this sheet so we saw this big thing being covered with a sheet in the last couple panels and when he reveals it it's this weird contraption with all these different dials on it and a jack-in-the-box for some reason (laughs) it's got kind of like this steampunk like you know just a bunch of junk fashioned together (laughs) I wouldn't say that it's steampunk because it's clearly running on electricity. Yeah. You're going to get some emails. Okay, I'll have to yeah. take that out. He <laughs> pulled that thing sheet down and said, see, didn't see that or whatever. I was just like, no, I was not expecting you to have your junk pile under there, dude. <laughs> <laughs> he says it controls their brains. A load-bearing jack-in-the-box and a, a belt. <laughs> <laughs> and he said it's bigger than the one that Waxman had made. It works all over the city. Have to kill me now. Have to be sure I'm dead. Too dangerous to let me live. Yeah, and then I'm going to kick this thing apart. Yes. Like, what? Like, what did you think? I'm not even sure that thing works. No, I. Same. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, he's just so far gone. There's a. There's a. Every chance that it really is just he feeds them and they do what he says. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Is that it can't be this contraption thing? Like, it has to be some other right reason. I'm still looking for it. I gotta say, I love the way Snibiog draws him, you know, like, because the, the, they introduce him with that, you know, like that roll beneath his neck, and you can tell he's like, he was a larger man who lost weight very rapidly. Oh, yeah, yeah, he does mention that, that nice he detail. lost a lot of weight. I love all his work with the cannibals, and just like, he does a good job with like, disheveled people for some reason, it can always draw uh, characters really great like that. I think it's good because uh, with disheveled people, he has details he plays with that, um... He can put in history, like, you know, it's it's one of those things you look at someone, you see the dishevelness, and it's not, not just that they're a mess, but the mess tells a story. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. So the lobster and Eugene, they go back and they meet up with Isaiah and the rest of the lobster's crew, having defeated all the cannibals. And they're like, oh, we heard explosions, sounded like your grenades. He beat out on us twice, Harry says, but I knew you wouldn't let him get away. No, he didn't get away, the lobster says. So we didn't see that. He was like, oh, you got to kill me to make sure I'm dead. But we didn't actually see that. But I guess the lobster killed him. Oh, well. Well, that's what I love is like, like these stories always play with ambiguity in that regard. Like, like, you know, like they're playing with um what you see, what you don't see and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, like he could have died from his wounds. He could have been killed by the lobster in cold blood after uh, and then you know like been burned with the lobster claw it's just completely left to the reader's imagination to fill in those blanks right right and so i like this last page we get this scene at the herald tribune and one of the other reporters he comes up and he's like oh look at the story that i got and it says homeless heroes of hooverville and it's that story about isaiah and all their crew and he's like an alliteration in the banner to boot it was like a gift from heaven really see sister he tells cindy as he throws the paper in front of her that's what makes front page news that's how a real newspaper man does it and she just sits back and looks at the paper yeah just might be time for me to look into a new line of work and that's it i love that because she already knew about the story beforehand so yeah that was so good excellent Mm -hmm. and once again i just like the way that um her face is drawn she's like got that kind of smug like yeah i already knew this jack yeah (laughs) good one gotta say those last few pages with uh with lobster johnson don't exactly paint him as very heroic yeah you're right i mean he's just a killing machine yeah yeah it's it's very much what um jan was bringing up 
Yeah, that's a good point. So let's look at um, 126, and we're looking at the digital. And so we have the sketchbook section for these two stories. And yeah, Troy Nixie has a very distinctive style with the lobster. He definitely looks a bit more ghoulish there. Yeah, it really does. I think that's all we really get for Chain Forged in Life. On the next couple pages, we get pencils and inks by Snyberg for The Forgotten Man. And so this is showing kind of like Mm. the difference between just the raw pencils and then once he goes back and inks it. And it's really incredible, this shot with the Harlem Hellfighters coming to save the lobster. Yeah, it's interesting to see what details he chooses to have, you know, really tight in his um, pencils versus what he keeps loose. Over the page, there's that one where it's it's literally just text that says close up of machine. Oh, right. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's so funny. (laughs) oh and the machine doesn't look as crazy here yeah here it's not as detailed with a in it's got some different stuff on there it's got like an accordion and a bicycle worked into there and like a horn or something that's interesting that layout makes me think that like in the script there was something like akudi was like make the most ridiculous machine you can and he just like spitballed a bunch of ideas (laughs) showed him you know the first panel and then um, he was like, pick the detail you want me to zoom in on. And then like, I could, he was like, oh my, it has to be the jack in the box. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Excellent. I'm so glad that you could join us again, Mark, for this Christmas Eve episode. Yeah. I hope that everyone is having a yeah, good holiday. Yeah, yeah. I hope that everyone's having a good holiday. And if you're not, that's okay, too. You can go and hide in the corner and listen to the Hellboy Book Club. Yeah. We're your friends every day. Just yeah. pull up any old podcast. Yeah. A little bit of a shorter episode this week. We'll be coming back with another short episode next week. We're banking some episodes, and I want to make sure that everyone's got a podcast to listen to every week. So, But we'll be back again with another great episode. And now Aubrey's going to say all the things. All right, everybody, share us your thoughts on this week's uh, Lobster Johnson episodes, A Chain Forged in Life, and The Forgotten Man. You can send us uh, Hey You Damn Guys at HellboyBookClub at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hellboy Book Club. And you can find the Discord and reading list on the About section on our Facebook page. As always, a special thank you to uh, Paul from Gartahan for the uh, theme music. Also, thank you, Mark, for being yeah, on the show. Yeah, everybody say thanks to Mark Tweedell. Uh, and the reading or everything. Uh, thank you, John, for being a badass. Thank you, Danielle, for always rocking. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> You can find the podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Next week, we're reading some more Lobster Johnson as we read the stories The Glass Mantis, Garden of Bones, and Mangekyo. So you know what to do. Pull out your goggles, grab your (laughs) issues, and sit down and join us next week on the Hellboy Book Club podcast. (laughs) Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. I'm John Salinas. I'm the Glass Mantis. I'm Mark Tweedell. And I'm Aubrey Loveless saying... Holy cow, the lobster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody. Happy holidays. <laughs>